whatever you're doing, just look at it through a mental health lens and think about the risks and the opportunities as you would as a leader with so many other lenses, but just quite often not a mental health lens. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Jules Chapel, CEO of Kokoro. And they are a not-for-profit focused on mental health. And we're going to be talking about the work they do in bringing funders together, creating a collective, scaling up different initiatives, and championing the issue of mental health to funders and to those who are potential funders as well. So you're in for a very interesting conversation. And without further ado, Jules, great to see you again. And welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Abbas. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's great to see you again. And last time I saw you was pretty much almost a year ago when we were at this philanthropy conference, both of us on the same panel. So it's maybe an annual occurrence now. We're going to put that in the diary. So you're the chief executive officer of Kokoro. Uh, tell me a little bit about the organization. What's it all about? So we are a not-for-profit. We were set up a few years ago by Natasha Muller, uh, who is a fabulous activist, investor, philanthropist who uses the UN Sustainable Development Goals as her framework for action. But we focus particularly on mental health um, because it is something that cuts right across the Sustainable Development Goals. And in fact, it kind of cuts right across anything human. You know, mental health is something that, um, just like physical health, obviously we all have, it will affect how we feel, how we behave, the decisions that we make. And really, at a very top level, what we're trying to do is to help leaders across sectors understand the importance and the impact of mental health um, and to see it as a foundation for a safer, kinder, more productive world. And what that means in practice, obviously, that's a very big sort of top level concept. But what it means in practice is three things. So we do connecting, scaling and championing. So within Connecting, we run something called the Future Mental Health Collective, which is supporting over 140 funders, private sector funders, individuals, families, companies, who are including, integrating mental health into their philanthropy, their investment, their venture philanthropy, kind of all the different forms of capital they might be using. And we um, support that collective as a way of helping funders to coordinate, to learn from each other, to amplify what each other is doing. Really, really important, particularly within a sector that is moving and growing so quickly. So that's on the connecting side. On the scaling side, that sort of recognizes that even if we are super coordinated and effective, there fundamentally just isn't enough um, human and financial capital yet within mental health to tackle the, the scale of the global crisis. And so scaling, we have various initiatives within that, um, including something called the Next Wave Champions, which is around supporting private funders who are starting to think about mental health, but who haven't yet started to allocate uh, funding. And the way that we work is essentially helping people to firstly um, understand what's already happening, who's doing what, what's going on, but then uh, tap into the peer-to-peer -peer sort of experience and learn from those that have been doing it for a while. So the aim is simply to make it easier, less intimidating, and hopefully, you know, a lot of very practical hands-on support. And then the third thing, championing. 
for that really is around trying to elevate the voices of people with lived experience um those who are really doing some incredible innovation but particularly those that are kind of on the front lines of the mental health crisis and understanding what that can look like feel like in lots of different contexts all around the world i can see here your thinking is quite strategic you're yes. you're you're looking at the system and what are those levers that you need to sort of tweak calibrate recalibrate uh, not just to get the funding in there but helping uh, those people interact with each other, learn from each other, cross-pollinate ideas, and hopefully then everybody building that momentum, right, to tackle mental health. That's exactly right. And and I use a couple of different comparisons. One is um, I always talk about the journey that, that climate funding and activism and advocacy has gone on in the sense that I would say most leaders of most major organizations, whether that be public, private, third sector, they will know how they fit into the climate crisis. Everyone will play a different role within this kind of um, puzzle of solutions and, and interventions and behavior changes that we need. But most major leaders of major organizations will know which what role they play. And what we are hoping to achieve is, is to do the same thing for the mental health crisis, because ultimately it is similarly holistic, complex, you know, it's the planet or us as people. And it requires that piecing together where, whereby we have a sense of collectively, this is where we need to go. And, and on the environmental side, it took a very long time for people to agree, you know, what are those overarching targets? But look, this is seriously what we need to do. And within that, there are lots of different tracks and lots of different things to, to, to do. But we need to sort of come up with something equivalent on the people side of things. The other thing that I will point to is actually the physical health revolution that we've gone through so just to give a couple of stats because i find them so extraordinary back in 1950 the global average life expectancy was 45 and a half years old last year the average global life expectancy was almost 73 years old that's extraordinary a an absolute revolution within physical health and that, you know, there will be lots of things as to why that has happened, but much greater understanding, much greater access all around the world. And I start to think about mental health in a way that I get very excited because I think actually we're at the start of that revolution within the mental health world. And it is about tackling mental illness, but it is also about understanding, goodness me, what an extraordinary world if 8 billion of us could access our A game on a more consistent basis because we had the support and understanding. What an extraordinary world that could be. Um, so it is important to think about the um, the opportunity as well as the risk, um, because otherwise I think the scale of the crisis can feel quite overwhelming. And before we delve into some of the issues around mental health, tell me a little bit about the organization. Uh, how do you operate? In other words, the, the scaling, the championing, the collective, do you run that internally? Do you sort of fund those initiatives? Give us a flavor for somebody who's never heard of you. <laughs> what does it look like? The way that we work is in absolutely radical levels of collaboration. So everything is done through partnerships and networks and um, and working together in a way that, you know, I've worked in very big organizations and startups. And for me, the power of building coalitions and campaigns and um, 
collective passion, I guess, as well as collaboration and inspiration. It's just, it is so powerful. And so, yes, we um, we do a lot, but actually most of what we're doing is pulling the dots together <laughs> and, and delivering through um, the collective power of, say, the, the network, the, um, you know, the 140 funders working together, or working through um, other initiatives. And, and, you know, we are very, very lucky that Natasha, as our founder, is able to, you know, to allocate capital as well. That is obviously a game changer. So just to give one other example, we um, helped to get an initiative called Cop Squared up and running, which is helping to integrate psychological resilience into the global climate adaptation agenda. Um, but again, that's working with the many, many partners of the Race to Resilience. Um, so very established global infrastructure, but we're able to, um, you know, to work in partnerships such that you're integrating psychological resilience rather than trying to recreate something or build it all from scratch. It's interesting you're, you're mentioning this COP squared and the resilience and um it's just the other day, I remember hearing and reading one of the headlines where they're talking about a spike in people conducting online searches uh, around climate-related anxiety. Yeah. Um, how much of a toll is that taking on society? Both, you would think instinctively, the, the youth of society, but just more broadly, society. How, what, what sort of toll is it taking? I, I think it's really serious. Um, and when we, again, COP Squared is a global initiative and the intersection between the climate crisis and the mental health crisis comes out in different ways because so certainly within the UK, we've supported groups such as Force of Nature that are working um, to help, yes, young people, but also those who are very active in um, advocating for change where they are as a day job, knowing the science, knowing the policies, knowing the lack of urgency, or even where there is urgency, it's still not matching the scale that is needed. And that is incredibly difficult. And, and for some, affecting very seriously life decisions, such as, you know, young um, people who don't want to bring children into the world because of you know, because of either what they see or because of their sense of responsibility. And, you know, that is, I can't think of a, okay, I'm a mother, so I'm biased, but I can't think of a more, a more extraordinary sense of um, pressure to, to feel, uh, you know, the, that, that sense of anxiety, but within other communities where you, you know, you are on the front line of extreme weather events, or you are a smallholder farmer, my dad's a farmer, so again, I, I kind of feel this quite personally, but that sense of you've always planted X at a certain time of year, and that's what your for, you know, your your father told you, your grandfather told you, you, that is what's being done culturally, and yet everything around you, that certainty, that connection that you have with the ground is changing, uh, and it is that combination of um, serious anxiety, depression, grief um that of course is not just affecting you as an individual it's affecting your family and at the same time these are communities where you know the, say on the climate adaptation side of things they're trying to support right you need to change you need to do this you need to do that and yet mental health has to be part of it because it's like you know if you are in a sense of situation where you are just simply 
struggling, seriously struggling. You can have all that extra support, but it will be very hard sometimes to make the most of it because because it has been such a serious situation that um, that has compromised your you know your health. And so integrating it, as I say, we always try very hard to say this is not a zero sum thing. It's not about saying this is more important or that's more important, but it is about recognizing that the human being at the at the center of the action is a is a holistic one that has both physical and mental health. And that at least factoring that in and understanding it and supporting it, chances are will bring positive outcomes, not just mental health outcomes, but a whole range of other secondary outcomes that do better because the individual at the heart of it is doing better as well. Mm. Is the pendulum moving in the right direction with regards to perhaps stigma and how we no longer feel that being open about our individual challenges around mental health is uh, something that's going to destroy our careers, is going to destroy our life, that we have a, a safe space perhaps to start sharing some of the uh, the feelings uh, that, uh, you know, that people have? I think COVID was an absolutely critical moment in terms of totally shifting um, the the awareness, the understanding, um, the, the humanizing, right, of of all of us as in in workplace environments. It was, um, I think, it did shift things dramatically. However, <laughs> I was actually challenged on this one. So I, I was giving a talk um, where I was talking about, you know, it is great. I can talk openly about my mental health challenges and someone asked me and said yeah but would you have done so before you got to a position of leadership it's great that you can it's important that you do but if you were still thinking that um, other people might be judging you for a promotion or in my diplomatic days for a certain posting would you speak so openly about it and you know <laughs> I knew <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I knew the answer because I didn't want to say it, which is I knew, I absolutely instinctively knew she was right. She was right to challenge that I probably would still be holding back. And that to me shows that we haven't come anywhere near far enough. But of course, there are other contexts where it is still illegal to die by suicide. You know, that even that phrase commit suicide refers back to a time when you are committing a crime. And it's why the, the language is important to change. If you die by suicide, you're not committing a crime, but in some countries you still are. In some countries, there's still things called like shackling where, you know, those suffering from, um, from mental illness will be literally tied. And so I think the, I, I personally don't like talking about stigma because I want to feel that we've moved past it that we are focusing on access to services and innovation and upskilling all of us um to be to be there for each other but sadly i think that is premature and it's it's recognizing that for some you know as someone used a phrase that was so powerful they said you know since i've started talking about mental health people will come up to me and, and it's in a whisper it's in a whisper you know so yes people respond you open up people respond but um but it made me very sad to hear that you know it was in a, it was in a whisper. The issue of mental health seems to be becoming much more prevalent. Uh, you, you read about it in the news. Um, I'm curious in terms of the donors that you mentioned. You know that that second pillar where you talk about scaling up and encouraging uh, potential funders to get into this space and connecting them with their peer network and uh, of folks who are already 
giving uh, to mental health. What are the dynamics there? For somebody thinking about uh, funding mental health, what do they normally want to fund about it? What do they, what do they know about it? So that is really positive. The dynamics are changing. Um, and I think that is so exciting because it is seen as an area that, uh, I mean, the health in general, when we think about the role of new technologies in personalizing, tailoring support at global scale. And we know this across the health sector, you know, watch this space, goodness me, what is going to change over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Then you think about something as complex as mental health that is both to do with your genetics, but also your environment. It needs to it really does need to be incredibly individual and tailored. And suddenly we have this huge opportunity around how will new technologies change this, utterly change this landscape, whilst also recognizing that there's a lot of um, knowledge that is very, very old. You know, some of the indigenous practices or some of the practices that we've known actually almost before sometimes I think... You know, you could. We, it's sometimes in our kind of day-to-day rush, it's almost you lose some of the um, what it is to be human. You know, some of the things that our our foreparents knew much much better than us, almost. So it's that kind of collective knowledge, and the capital is following. So the levels of investment are growing, um, and the levels of philanthropy are growing, and it's interesting to see because I think people are sensing that the moment is now. The crisis is huge, but I would argue it has always been very large and underfunded. So what is the shift now? I think it is a sense of opportunity uh, in a good sense, not, you know, um, but it's it's that sense of momentum and movement of interesting people already being involved in it. So you get a little bit of wanting to work alongside each other, but also the companies. So I think for some companies, there is that sense of being on the right side of this one not being late to the party, you know, uh, being early movers in a issue that really matters to younger generations, um, that is under addressed. So it's an incredible place for those companies that want to be thought leaders um, and to make a difference. And and that is showing in the number of uh, companies that have started taking action in literally the last few years. Mm -hmm. For someone listening to this, who the conversation resonates with them, they want to find out more. Maybe they want to, they start thinking about where they could fund or how their company could get involved. What are they? What's your suggestion? Should they contact you? Um, should you? Could you act as a bridge to others? How would you operate in that regard? So we have um, a website called nextwavechampions.com, which is worth looking at because it lays out some of the basics. Um, there is a back end to that, which it's worth contacting uh, contacting us, and hopefully we can share details um, through the uh, through the podcast. But the back end of that, which is password protected, but then opens up a whole load of resources. So briefing documents. So if you want to know how mental health intersects with gender based violence, or with physical health issues, or with poverty or nutrition, we have um, briefs that aim to make it very succinct of here's the research, here's statistics, and here's who's doing what in this area. These are big initiatives that are up and running that you might want to initially get involved with. You know, as people get involved, then maybe they want to do something else or they want to set up something of their own, but at least come in and see see what's what's happening. 
it, there also is a database of um, charities and entrepreneurs that members of this group, uh, the collective, have funded. So it's not a mapping, but it is a peer-to-peer -peer recommendation. There's uh, things like navigating networks, which is recognizing that there are quite a lot of networks for funders out there, but sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Um, and over time, we've picked up all sorts of just little bits of intelligence that were just like, actually, there's a lot here, but, you know, nobody's necessarily got the time to be doing all of this. So let us try and make it really easy um, so that it's easy to understand this is how the sector breaks down. This is who's doing what. Um, let, let us connect you. We even have masterclasses on there. So funders that will say, right, you really want to fund mental health in India. Complex country to give to a whole set of specific um, issues and, and we will give you a masterclass on that you want to know about um, how you monitor and evaluate mental health again a whole set of issues but let us make it as quick and as simple as we can by sharing what we've learned over many many years so yeah that's it we aim to be super practical absolutely fascinating and give us a, again the website address so nextwavechampions.com or come through Cockerow and uh, we will hook you up. And you can find out more. Excellent. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but your career, fascinating. And I'd love to find out a little bit more and just share that with our audience as well. Uh, diplomacy, uh, the origins of your, of your career. Give us a little bit of an insight into, into, your, uh, into your professional uh, trajectory. So I started, yeah, sort of 14 years as a British diplomat. I was posted in Jordan, Iraq, Ethiopia, Washington, and I was ambassador in Guatemala, covering Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And um, I was one of those real geeks at school. I just knew I wanted to do it. And I've met some, um, uh, one of my friend's parents that were both diplomats and she used to sigh because they'd start every story with it. When I was in Blur and she was like, oh my God, my parents are so boring. And I was like, your parents are fascinating. And I always just wanted, I love this idea of living in different places, learning different languages, seeing the world through, staying somewhere long enough to see the world through a completely different lens. Um, and I had always wanted to get some private sector experience and felt that that was quite important. Um, a lot of what you do as a diplomat can be um, commercial work and working with companies internationally. And so, and I always felt a little bit of the uh, imposter syndrome of, well, I don't know, I've never done it. And so I left uh, and then joined a, a startup, which I maintain is the most brutal way to learn about the private sector when you're having to literally build from scratch but was the most incredible incredible experience very 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 helpful um and that ability to just get on and do when I had been used to working in something very big where you know it takes time to build things and piece things together and suddenly in a, in a startup you know, my um, partner sort of looked at me and was like, why are you still here? Come on, crack on, go do it. And so I found that very helpful. Um, but I think across my career, it is, it's always been that desire to learn something new, to build um, connections across different dots. And the breadth of it has allowed me to, to do that. And that is what um, really excites me. I, I love that kind of intellectual 
curiosity and meeting very different people who I find fascinating. Any any similarities between being an ambassador and uh, running a, an organization like Kokoro? Huge comparisons um, because it's always about trying to get people aligned on something that you've got no direct, um, you know, as an ambassador, I, I couldn't pay people to agree with me. You had to, you know, and I, I remember when I was at, um, in Guatemala, we did a campaign around domestic violence and helping the next generation of parents to do things differently. And we ended up forming a human chain from the top to the bottom of a volcano. And we had, you know, so many brilliant sponsors and youth organizations and government departments. Everyone was working together. But you had to do it with a tiny budget. And it was all around how do we get people to genuinely share in a vision and feel inspired and want to play their bit in the puzzle. And this is that at a global level with a global crisis. Um, but again, it's all around getting people to um, to want to do their bit because they see the value of it for themselves um, as well as for the bigger for the bigger impact. Absolutely. Now, I I would like to ask you for a key takeaway, but before we before I do that uh, and before we wrap up, for those who need a little bit of a of a nudge to find out a bit more about mental health and perhaps contemplate getting involved either as a funder or as a as or for a career or or in some way supporting it what's that key thing in terms of the context of mental health right now that you think you know what if only people knew this i if i think about my own journey you know i work in mental health every single day and yet i'm still bad at prioritizing it because it's something that sadly for me is still quite new which is crazy it, sorry bad phrase but it's it's wrong you know it's how can it be something new when it's so fundamental to how i show up every day and so it surprises me that i still need to remind myself to prioritize um mental health within my day so to think about what will enable me to feel grounded, to give me perspective, especially when you're working at such a strategic level? You know, without perspective, you're lost. And so it's, uh, and I, I have an, as I say, Natasha is an amazing role model in integrating it and making it absolutely part of my day. And everything benefits because of that. You know, and sometimes I think it is easy to think, well, I'm just too busy for this and I'm too busy for that. And actually, you know, my relationship with my children, my relationship with my work, my relationship with my own health, all stands to benefit from me prioritizing mental health. And yet I know, I know there will still be so many days when I don't. So I kind of, I think that's, um, it is, it's, it's almost that commitment to yourself. And then the other thing that I think is the commitment to be there for others because ultimately um, that, you know, we, we need to solve this as, as a community, as human beings, we are, a, you know, we're a community. And I think, again, that can feel um, for so many different ways in our, you know, urban society, and yet loneliness can be such a real thing, or, or simply that sense of you're rushing through and you can be with people, but sort of ships in the night and not really 
connecting and so learning and that there's an incredible thing called the be there certificate that lady gaga's born this way foundation does that is free but it's around how do you be there for your friends be there for each other um and i think taking the time not only for yourself but to understand how you can be a better um support for those that you really care about in itself is also really really important here here and not for that key takeaway what's that one thing you love for the maybe maybe that was it but What's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? So I think that my key takeaway individually is what I've just said, but I think my key takeaway would be to get those leaders of organizations thinking, what is it that we do and what role does mental health play in that? And that might be as simple as employee well-being, but chances are it will be bigger than that because just as the environmental movement moved from okay what's the carbon footprint of my office to gosh how does our supply chain impact that to through to gosh what's the thought leadership element or the research and development like what is it that we can do bigger than that mental health is the same you know it is thinking about are we contributing in a positive way or other things that we're doing um that we either it's a blind spot we haven't thought about how if we integrated mental health we could get where we're trying to go faster um you know if you're focusing on homelessness for example and you haven't integrated mental health support there are so many tight correlations with other issues but surprisingly mental health just can sometimes be a bit of a blind spot and so i think that would be my key takeaway was just whatever you're doing just look at it through a mental health lens and think about the risks and the opportunities as you would as a leader with so many other lenses but just quite often not a mental health lens Absolutely wonderful. Jules, thank you so very much for coming on the Do One Better podcast today and for sharing insight on your work and mental health and some tips uh, on what to do if you're remotely interested in this space, which I hope the listeners will be. Thank you. Thank you so much. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Jules Chappell, CEO of Kokoro. For information about this episode and more than 250 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoy producing today's chat for you, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.